Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Good afternoon, and thanks so much for joining us today. My name is Bernie Williams. I'm from the University of Lethbridge, and it's my uh, honor and, and privilege to be your, uh, your moderator today. And uh, before we get underway, I'd like to just acknowledge a few of our supporters, uh, the U of L for the support and distribution of notices, Country Kitchen Catering, as well as Shaw TV, who are here uh, recording it, and uh, CKXU, FM, the Lethbridge Herald, and other media sources. We appreciate your support. It's my uh, pleasure today to introduce our speaker, who is Dwayne Bratt from uh, Mount Royal University in Calgary. And he's going to speak to us today on Canada's democratic deficit. It's uh, systemic. Is it systemic and can it be fixed? Um, you may recognize Dwayne, either his voice or his face. He's a frequent contributor to um, CBC uh, Radio as well as Access All, uh, Television, Alberta Primetime, and a uh, well-known political commentator. Uh, Dwayne originally hails from Ontario, where he attended the University of Windsor, but then he got wiser in his old age and came out to Alberta and, and attended the University of Alberta. He, he holds a PhD from that institution and, uh, as I mentioned, is a professor and the chair of the uh, Policy Studies Department at Mount Royal University. So please join me in welcoming Dwayne Bratt. Hopefully there's not too much feedback. If, if not, I'll just get away from the mic if there's, if there's too much. And I, I can usually project my, my deep voice pretty well. Um, I usually like to begin with a bit, bit of a story, a bit of an anecdote. Um, no speeding tickets coming down this time as uh, the last time I came down to Lethbridge. But on Tuesday, we, uh, our student society hosted uh, Justin Trudeau spoke at uh, Mount Royal. And what is interesting about that and how this ties into myself is I've, myself or our department have hosted all sorts of politicians over the years from all parties, you know, whether that's been Elizabeth May, whether that's been Stephane Dion, whether that's been Ralph Klein, whether that was uh, Stephen Harper before he was Prime Minister, um, in this case, Justin Trudeau. Uh, but never have I seen students waiting in line to, uh, to see a speaker. Usually we're trying to drag them in to, to hear them. But what I'm worried about is afterwards there was, a, there was a scrum upstairs, a media scrum. And he's in there, and uh, I'm standing next to David Terrace, who uh, used to teach at the University of Calgary, and we stole him, and he's at Mount Royal. And there's a woman from the Inscom uh, uh, Aboriginal Centre who knew Justin for, for years. So he finishes the scrum... And he sees her, so he comes running over, and they have this big hug. Well, David and I are standing right here, and so I look at David, and I go, we must be in the hug line. So he finishes hugging her, comes over and hugs me. Well, all the news crew is there, and they're snapping photos, and, and I'm going, oh, great. This is going to end up on somebody's Facebook site. You know, I try to be nonpartisan, and there I am hugging Justin Trudeau. Uh, my reputation would be over. And my dad, who Trudeau was pretty much a four-letter word when I grew up uh, in Calgary in the 70s, is probably rolling in his grave. Uh, so that's my, uh, my story for the morning. I was asked to speak about Canada's democratic deficit, and often it starts off, when, when people make that, it's the attack on the government of the day, and in particular, the, the Harper government. And I want to begin by saying, this isn't new. 
So I pulled a book off my shelf from about 10 years ago by Jeffrey Simpson. You may recognize that guy in the, uh, in the suit there, Jean Chrétien, The Friendly Dictatorship, and it was about the overarching power of the Prime Minister's office. This was written 10 years ago when Stephen Harper was still sitting with the National Citizens Coalition. So the idea that we have a democratic deficit in Canada is not new. And in Simpson's book, what he talked about were the powers of the Prime Minister, his ability largely unilaterally to appoint the Cabinet, to appoint the Senate, to appoint all ambassadors, to appoint the Supreme Court, his ability to use orders in council without even going through Parliament, the tight party discipline and the, the whip votes that exist in Parliament, uh, the rise of the Prime Minister's office, which goes back decades. Uh, Daniel Savoy talked about it in governing from the center. Um, you know, the, the Paul Martin used to complain when he was uh, uh, finance minister under Jean Chrétien that uh, it was who you knew in the PMO until he became leader and he controlled the PMO and then that was okay. So we've seen the PMO grow and grow and grow. And bear in mind, most of the people in the prime minister's office are about their mid-20s and they're the handlers for the ministers and they're the handlers now in uh, various government departments and I'll talk a bit about that later on. There are traditional constraints to the power of the Prime Minister. Opposition parties, particularly in a minority government, um, the Charter of Rights, courts, public opinion, the provinces through our federal system. So some of these constraints exist. So, so I think, and I wrote at the time in a review of Simpson's book, that he was overstating the, the fact. But what he was capturing was a trend and this trend has escalated in the 10 years that he, he wrote it. So I want to now talk about, well, what is new? What is new compared to, to these pre-existing powers? I think the first has been the growth of prorogation. Uh, this came to light particularly in the 2008 uh, decision uh, by the Governor General uh, to allow Stephen Harper to prorogate Parliament uh, basically to avoid government defeat. He, his government was on the verge of being defeated by the combination of the NDP, the Bloc, and the, uh, the Liberals, and he used this power to avoid defeat, and in the end ends up winning re-election and re-election again. So there was a lot of controversy over that time, but it obviously didn't stop him because he did it a year later. Not as serious an issue, but it still involved avoiding testimony over the inquiry into Afghan detainees. Okay. Well, it's not unique to the federal government. It's not unique to the conservatives because Dalton McGuinty just did this in, in, in September. Now, he did it ostensibly because of a labor impasse with the teachers in Ontario. But really, it's because he was resigning. The liberals were going through a leadership race, and they didn't want the government to fall when they didn't have a leader. It's as blatant as that. So we're seeing this growth of prorogation. And given our system, for the lieutenant governor or for governor general to deny it, would be a fundamental attack on the concept of responsible government. So it is, it is legal, it is constitutional, um, but we're seeing the growth of it, and I think that's worrisome. I think a second worrisome concern has been the cancelling of legislative sessions, and, and we don't see this federally, we see this provincially. Uh, during the Ralph Klein years, they would often cancel the fall sitting. Uh, it, it rarely happened. Um, last fall, Alison Redford promised to have a fall sitting, then she cancelled the fall sitting, then she had a three-day fall sitting. It's not quite the same thing. Christy Clark in BC has also cancelled 
the fall legislative session. So one of the few times that the opposition actually allows to challenge the government is when the legislature is in there, so it's no wonder that governments don't like it. Ralph Klein used to say, if I have to do anything, I'll do it in order in council. I don't want to bother the opposition parties. <coughs> yes. The third new thing, I think, has been the growth of omnibus bills. And uh, this is when you have one bill and you tack on all sorts of other stuff to it. So I want to trace three, four bills. The first one was in 2010. The budget bill, 880 pages long. Okay. Um, that's a lot of reading. And I just want to uh, reference something. I spoke to the Canadian Senate in the spring of 2010 on the proposed sale of Atomic Energy of Canada Limited at that time. And that was embedded within this budget bill. And I just want to read you what I, what I said to the Senators uh, that morning. I said, uh, I'd like to thank the Standing Senate Committee on National Finance for inviting me to speak about the provisions related to the restructuring of the Atomic Energy of Canada Limited that has been embedded in the government's budget bill. I must say, right off the top, that I am disappointed with a government which has adopted the worst aspect of the American legislative process by attaching riders unrelated to the bill in question. The omnibus bill contains so many riders that it resembles a Christmas tree. And under the American system, you have a piece of legislation, and any senator or member of the House can add clauses to it. And they usually do it around defense appropriations, because you either have to vote yes for the defense appropriation or vote against it. And so they'll put in pet projects all the time in that. And if you vote against it, well, then you're anti-military and you should hang in the streets. And this is a well-known tactic down there. Um, my colleague uh, Chris Kakuch is there, and he, uh, he teaches trade policy, so he's familiar with the Byrd Amendment, uh, which was an amendment that allowed companies in the United States to receive the anti-dumping duty directly to the company instead of the U.S. Treasury, um, which gave them a huge incentive to launch uh, complaints. Well, that was tied into a defense appropriation that the uh, senator from West Virginia, Robert Byrd, kind of snuck in there. And once it's in there, it's very tough to get away of. Well, we hadn't done that in Canada until the Harper government did it in 2010. And I thought, well, that's a one-off. This is a, uh, they were in a minority situation. The budget was a vote of confidence. So you, if you voted against the omnibus bill, you would force an election, which the liberals didn't want at that time. So I could understand the tactics of that. Then he wins his majority, and he does it again. So we have the 2012 budget bill. He did shape that down. It was only 435 pages. But it included, beyond the budget, environmental policy, MP pensions, parks, animal health, railway, nuclear safety, all tied into it. You either voted yes or you voted no. There wasn't time to debate each clause of this. He did it with the crime bill that involved mandatory minimum sentencing and it involved um, the building of new prisons. All of this stuff embedded, multiple pieces of legislation, all in one bill, vote for it, vote against it. But he didn't invent the omnibus bill. In 2005, Paul Martin, also in a minority situation, introduced a liberal omnibus bill, but it was only 180 pages. He was a more concise writer. The leader of the opposition at the time, Stephen Harper, said in the House, 
He called the bill anti-democratic and a contradiction to the conventions and practices of this House. In the interests of democracy, I ask, how can members represent their constituents on these various areas when they are forced to vote on a block of such a legislation? I agree with Stephen Harper. The younger Stephen Harper. It's like, you know, a band. You know, I like the old stuff instead of the new stuff. And as I said, I could appreciate, although I disagreed with it, in a minority situation. But in a majority government, this is simply legislative bullying. And uh, uh, I'm not sure what the answer is. I just think that's, that's the third major theme of, of what's getting worse. And then the fourth, I'm going to steal from a speech that, that Alan Gray gave, uh, former Decima pollster, um, CBC commentator. He gave this, uh, this speech at Carleton to a room of about this size, and he called it the attack on reason. And his speech went viral, uh, went viral so much that a group in Calgary invited him to speak, um, and it became a big event. And he's been on a speaking tour ever since, repeating the same comments. And what he was concerned about wasn't the omnibus bills, and it wasn't about the prorogation. He called it the attack on reason. And what started for him, and this is a pollster, this is a data guy, was the attack on Statistics Canada and on the census and limiting the census because apparently all sorts of people were going to prison over not filling this out. Um, this is now damaging the data. But I think the argument about them going to prison was simply a populist move. And what it was really about was getting rid of evidence and getting rid of documentation. And it's because of, for example, the crime bill. And there was this large discussion about why are you building all of these new prisons at hundreds of millions, possibly billions of dollars, and the public safety minister at the time, Stockwell Day, says, well, you know, there's an awful lot of unreported crime out there. <clears throat> and he's right. There is a lot of unreported crime, and I'm sure if you build the prisons, those unreported criminals will show up to, to fill up the, the beds. But what was embarrassing the government is all this data from Statistics Canada saying, well, the crime rate is dropping. Okay, so what is a good alternative to that? Defund Statistics Canada. There was a, a little-known event, and I thought it should have got a lot more publicity back in the summer. There was a major demonstration on Parliament Hill. And this normally occurs. The difference with this is these were all scientists in lab coats. And they were chanting about, what do we want? Evidence. How do we want it? Under peer review, which I thought was an interesting slogan. Uh, and it's because there has been an attack on government scientists. And I'll give you two examples of this. Example number one is there's been a whole series of uh, cutbacks to the public service that you may be aware of. But these are across the board in one sense, but they're also targeted. And a good example is Parks Canada. Parks Canada has gone through cutbacks, but there's two wings of Parks Canada. There is the tourism wing of Parks Canada. That's fine, but there's also the scientific wing of Parks Canada. It's talking about water and ground soil and trees and all of that. That's what's being cut. And you can see this in department after department after department. It's the PhDs in biology and in chemistry and in physics and in environmental sciences that are being cut. I have got a number of colleagues that work at Chalk River Laboratories, uh, the, the nuclear research reactor in, in Canada, and they talk about the PMO officials now sitting in on their meetings 
because they're thinking of restructuring Chalk River. They've already privatized the reactor division, but they're trying to figure out what to do with the lab and whether there will be a public-private partnership, whether there will be more public funds, whether it will be privatized. What exactly is the relationship? Well, while this is going on, the PMO wants to make sure that the scientists don't say anything. Now, what has occurred has just been an absolute chill because they're, they're talking in such a way that the PMO officials, who are you know, straight out of undergrad that have a, a father or a relative uh, in the Conservative Party, and so they join the, the PMO, um, and they don't understand the scientific jargon. And uh, so that, you know, it's almost like uh, you know, doctors speaking in Latin to, con- to confuse the, the kids at the table. Now they'll start speaking in the periodic table and, and quantifying it. But they have created a chill. And, and I think this is, this is all worrisome. So those are four trends that I, that I see uh, of why the situation has actually gotten, gotten worse. So if the, uh, the topic was Canada's democratic deficit, is it systemic? The answer is yes. Um, can it be fixed? Well, that's going to be a lot tougher. So uh, I'll provide a couple cautionary notes. I have no magic bullet. There are no answers here. As I tell my students, if you're looking for answers, go to math class. I'll just give you more questions. And the first, I would caution you that the cure can often be more, worse than the disease. So if you want to change the control that the prime minister has, we could go to a U.S. presidential system where nothing gets done. Uh, they've had a major battle over the budget, and uh, there was a great book by Bob Woodward that I just finished reading in October, and it's, it's scary about how none of these people can agree, and so the, the American people were so upset with all of them that they re-elected all of them, uh, all the same people, Pelosi and Boehner and Cantor and Biden and Obama are all going to try to negotiate what they couldn't negotiate a year and a half ago. So we could go to that system. You know, we could go to the Belgian system where they don't even have a functioning government because of various uh, issues there. So simply uh, replacing things can often make it worse. And there's also the law of unintended consequences. Uh, and a good ex- illustration of that, I think, was, was Jean Chrétien's parting shot as he walked off the stage, which was getting rid of corporate and union donations and bringing in public subsidies and political parties, which I thought was really good public policy, but instead has inadvertently really aided the Conservative Party, and now they're using that tool to punish the, the other parties. So when you look at possible fixes, I think there's, there's two types. There's institutional change, and ultimately there's cultural change. And I'm skeptical about the institutional change. We can talk about manipulating the electoral system to some sort of preferential ballot or pr- proportional representation, and that might get us you know, minority governments um, that might be better in majorities in some respects and worse in other cases. Um, we do know that Canadians love minority governments when we have a majority in power, and we love majority governments when we have a minority in power. So... I'm not changing, changing the electoral system will work. Uh, there's been discussion about legislation around the prorogation, um, and in fact the federal court has said, well, that would require a constitutional amendment, not simply legislation, and I don't think we have an appetite to go through substantial constitutional change at this moment. We could talk about an elected Senate, which occurred in Australia, um, I'm not sure that's a, a good answer either. Uh, one of the events that we had at Mount Royal last year was a debate between Stephon Dion and Burt Brown over an elected Senate. 
And just as an impartial observer, I thought Burt Brown won the debate about an elected Senate if it lasted, if the debate lasted five minutes. But unfortunately for him, the debate lasted an hour, and I think at the end, Stefan Dion won. Because constitutionally, we have provisions on the composition of the Senate, and simply electing them is still going to mean that PEI has as many senators as Alberta. So I think there's problems with elected Senate. Changing role of the Governor General. Um, do we want an elected president? Do we want a split between the president and the prime minister? Uh, again, uh, there's lots of these institutional ideas. I'm not sure it makes it better. It may in some respects, but it may create other problems. I think ultimately it requires cultural change. And we need to strengthen the counterweights that pr already exist to prevent abuses. These counterweights, as I mentioned earlier, are opposition parties, are the Charter of Rights, are the courts, are the court of public opinion, and are they the provinces. And a good example is in Calgary, where I'm from, there is a by-election on Monday. A by-election that I publicly stated two months ago was going to be a cakewalk, and after Joan Crawford, Crockett won the nomination, I said, we shouldn't be discussing the general election, we should be discussing what her role is going to be in the new conservative government. Well, it's now a tight three-way race, so it shows that, once again, I'm very good at predicting the past, not the future. And it's a three-way race, and I think one of the framing questions is, do the people of Calgary Centre, which is also my riding, so I'm inundated with phone calls and all sorts of stuff, do we want another backbencher sitting uh, for the Conservatives to represent Calgary Centre, or do we want an opposition party? And I can tell you, if one of the opposition parties, if the, if the Liberals or the Greens win Monday night, this will cause an electoral earthquake in this country Tuesday morning. To lose a seat in, in, in Calgary for the Conservatives was the equivalent of Michael Ignatieff and Ken Dryden losing their Liberal seats in Toronto. And I think uh, that may be very good for democracy. I'm not endorsing any candidate. I've had a number of forums that I've been at. I did a forum this morning on The Current, which we taped it today. It'll be on tomorrow, with three of the four candidates. Um, I don't have to tell you which candidate did not appear. <laughs> After all, I am in Lethbridge, and you, you know the playbook for the Conservatives <laughs> there. So um, this was not intended to be a Conservative bashing event. Uh, I did bring up other parties, but just to show that this is just an ongoing trend uh, that we see, and uh, it's, get, it's getting worse in my view. So that's my happy thoughts for the day. Thank you. <laughs> we have time for questions, Bernie? We're going to have lunch first. Oh, we're going to have lunch first. All right, so you can think about what you're going to tell me I'm wrong about. <laughs>